The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. On today's episode of the Share Podcast, Kevin, with 28 years of sobriety, takes us through nine years of active drug and alcohol abuse. He started at the age of 13 drinking alcohol and smoking pot, and by the age of 18, he drops out of high school and registers into a trade school where he befriends the local drug dealer and promptly begins using cocaine and dropping acid daily. Though his drug of choice was alcohol, he would indiscriminately take drugs from anyone who would offer them to him. Over the next nine years, Kevin gets rejected by the Navy, is arrested multiple times for public intoxication, becomes the only white member of an all-black soul band traveling all over Alabama and tormented by paranoid delusions due to massive amounts of hallucinogenic drugs. Broke and alone, Kevin hits rock bottom. One morning after he awakens from a blackout, Kevin finds an AA big book miraculously sitting on the floor in front of him. He picks it up, takes his last shot of tequila, and reads the entire book in one sitting. Kevin never picks up another drink again. His story is amazing. Join us now. Hey, Kevin, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, O. It's great to have you on the show, buddy. So, Kevin, let's dive right in. Tell us about how your life is today, your hobbies, what you do for a living. Take us into your normal daily routine, including recovery. My normal daily routine, including recovery. So I wake up. I will usually chat online with some people, catch up with old friends and such. We'll talk a little bit later about how I don't really follow the concept of the Christian God anymore, so unlike most, I don't do a prayer in the morning, although I did for years until my view of a higher power changed. I teach English at night for open English. I do that online. So during the day, I will usually catch up on news and work on music. I play in a band. I play the bass, and I sing, and I play a little bit of guitar. So I will work on vocal exercises or work on new songs. That's basically it for me for a day. I'm an extremely lazy individual and always have been, so uh, <laughs> I spend a lot of time not doing things. So are you working out right now? I know that in the past we've had conversations about diet and exercise. Are you doing any kind of exercise? I have only because of a lot of music lately. I've only been going to the gym twice a week, but I like to go to the gym. I like to lift weights and do machines. I like to do very different kinds of programs that I come up with in my mind. I've been going for about seven years, so I kind of improvise at this point. Now, the what's the name of your band? Richard Burton and the Glorious Bastards. Very cool name. You know, I'm going to have to check you guys out. I hear you guys are pretty good, man. We'll be playing at Maxie's on Sunday, probably Right after Thanksgiving, I got to call and confirm that on a Sunday afternoon from 1 till 3. So I think that's going to be a great show to get people out that maybe don't want to go out late at night. Nice. I may have to check you guys out. So now moving into recovery. How old were you the first time you drank or used drugs? And more importantly, how did it make you feel? Okay, the first time I drank, I had 
very small amounts of beer from the age of seven when my father or mother would send me to the refrigerator to get them a beer. I remember it was a Schlitz, and I would pop the top and suck the foam off the top before I gave them the beer. But the first time I actually drank was to get drunk was at the age of 13 with some friends. I was in the church choir. An older guy there got us all a six-pack or actually got a couple of six-packs, and I drank about two beers. And I remember sitting out in a field with a ring around the moon. There was a big white ring around the moon. And I felt like I finally felt whole and complete inside. And all those fears and all those immense overcoming feelings of not fitting in, of not being a part of the human race, those were gone. And I thought I had finally found the cure to what was wrong with me. So now it's time for me to turn the show over to you, Kevin. It's time for you to share your story, your battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage you caused in your life, when you hit rock bottom, and finally your journey into recovery up until today. So Kevin, take it away. Okay, so uh, I think in the last question we covered how I felt before I had my first drink. So it was like the introduction into a new lifestyle for me. I, Due to trying to drink at that point when I was 13, I would drink every weekend, one night of the weekend, then going to school. I was in eighth grade at school. Our school changed that year, and I had been the bad kid in school, but all of a sudden we had a flood of new students who made me look like Mary Poppins. So (laughs) I had all these new kids as an influence, and we would stand out by a tree and drink liquor and smoke cigarettes before school. Again, I felt like finally I was part of a group because I had always, I had never quite fit in among people. And so I felt an acceptance, kind of, at least more so, from these kids. And we would have parties and things like this. That kind of moved on about the age of 14. I started smoking weed. I'd been afraid of it. Listened to all the uh, insane bullshit they tell you in school about the dangers of it. I believed all that. So I started smoking weed with my friends, and that gives you a whole nother ritual and a way of fitting in and just the act of passing around the joint. So at school, 14 and 15, every morning before high school, we would gather in the alley, maybe five of us. We would all spend a dollar to buy a joint. We would all light up our joints, and then we would pass them around. We all had a joint, but we would still pass them around. (laughs) So there's a real sense, though, of of some kind of connection that you make there. And for people like me, people who are addicts, alcoholics, that's something that we never really experienced. At least that's been my, from talking to other people, what I've understood. Moving on, I was still drinking. It was already becoming a problem. I remember the Christmas break when I was 14. I skipped school and went to a local house where we drank uh, rum and uh, smoked pot, listened to loud music, and I remember crawling out into the alley and throwing up and passing out at the age of 14. That was probably my first time passing out. None of that mattered because for me, I had found something that worked for me that cured what I felt inside. So I wanted to do it every day. And I did. By the time I was 18, a senior in high school, I was drinking two bottles of MD 2020 Mad Dog every morning before school. I dropped out of high school. I would have flunked out that year anyway. And I felt kind of like a meltdown inside and then just went 
pretty wild with drinking the whiskey every day, starting my day with whiskey when I could, when I could get it. Pretty much at that point, my whole life revolved around putting drinking drugs into my system. I took drugs indiscriminately, anything anyone had, I would take it or smoke it. But drinking was always my drug of choice. That was always the thing that did it for me. Everything else was kind of an accessory. So at that point, I was living at home and my father told me I needed to either go to school or get out or get a job. And I thought, well, the most easiest way, easiest, softest way would be to go to school. I opened up the yellow pages. The first school in the yellow pages was the Alabama College of Technology. So I enrolled the next day, did that for two years. Just so happened the guy in my class at school, we stayed in the same class the whole way through. He was the drug dealer for most of the rich section of Birmingham, Alabama, where, where I grew up. He immediately introduced me to cocaine. We would get high every day at school. He sold enormous amounts of weed, kind that I had never experienced before. Introduced me to LSD and some other things. So it just went on from there. I barely scraped through that school. The day after I graduated, oh, by the way, I went to to graduation on two hits of acid. And uh, seeing the pictures of my graduation, I had the insane LSD smile on my face. And I remember being completely out of control. And the horror (laughs) on my parents' and grandparents' face as they realized I was completely out of there. Dilated pupils, insane laughter, kind of pissed off my classmates. The next day, my mother had my bags packed for me. Didn't even need to pack them, and it was time for me to leave. I moved in. What's, a, yeah? what's amazing is that you graduated from high school, and you also graduated from this, what is it, a trade, was it a trade school, yeah. a technical school? electronic school, yeah. No, I did not graduate from high school. I went back and took a GED. Just one quick back step. I had a group of friends, we called ourselves the Punk Bums, and we were so obnoxious, no one would let us drink inside. So during this period of time, we would walk the streets drinking because we couldn't go anywhere. No one would let us in. We were just really obnoxious drunks. Every so often, maybe once a week, the police would come and pick one of us at random and put us in jail for public intoxication. Next day, you would pay either $20 and plead guilty and get out, or you could pay $25 and plead innocent and then have to go back to court. So I had this great idea that I was going to join the Navy, and they said, no, with your multiple arrests for intoxication, we don't want you in the Navy. I wanted to be on a submarine, which when I look back now, being older and less stupid, I think it was insane for me to join any kind of regimented organization like that, it would have been a complete disaster. But of course, when you're 18, the human brain doesn't finish developing till the age of 25. So your decision-making skills are greatly impaired. Plus, smoking the weed. I think that weed impairs our decision-making portions of our brain. I got my GED, then I went to this trade school, and then I scraped out of the last class. I barely made it out of that class. I had to talk to the guy to get them to give me my diploma because they had known I had been drinking every day of school for the last two years. I mean, it had been obvious. (laughs) I would come in reeking. So we would go to school for two hours, have a break, and go back for two more hours. And on every break, I would drink as much as I could and smoke massive amounts of pot out of a bong. 
with one of my classmates. Oh, I was also joined my first band there, I was, which is kind of interesting, a little sidetrack, but it was an all-black band, and this is in Birmingham, Alabama. You were part of an all-black band? An all-black top 40 soul band. And rhythm and you were the only white guy? I was the only white guy. We wore tuxedo shirts, black bow ties, black pants with plastic shiny fur. And that was our uniform. And I was supposed wow. to dance with them, and I was horrible at that. But one brief aside, which actually does pertain to the story, we went to play a gig in Montgomery at an all-black. Well, every club we played was all-black. So I grew up in racist Birmingham. Every member of my family or most every member of my family were racist. And so I grew up in that environment, and I was influenced by that. I wouldn't consider that I was a racist, but obviously if you grow up in that environment, it has an impact on you. We went to Montgomery. We had to take the back roads at night because police in Alabama did not appreciate black people driving at night. Uh, so they were a little bit afraid about going to Montgomery. It's a very bad time, and this was would have been about 1983. So we get to this huge club, 200 people. We start setting up the stage, and like a moron, I pop two hits of acid. <laughs> it really starts kicking in when we're in our first set. I start freaking out. I think all these black people are going to put a big pot in the middle of the floor and cook me. And I really... <laughs> And I really believe this is going to happen, and I'm shaking, and I'm sweating, and I'm trying to play the bass, and the band's going, what the hell's wrong with Kevin? What the hell's wrong with them? He must need another drink, so they're trying to feed me drinks, because they already know I'm a full-blown alcoholic. I don't know it yet, but they it's obvious to them. They're a little bit older than I am. I did make it through that show, but I just remember just the horror of any minute now they're going to bring out that pot, and that's going to be the end of it. Awesome. So anyway, that gets me through college. I moved to Atlanta the day after college to live with my brother. Alabama, I had already got one DUI about maybe six months before I left. My father was an alcoholic too, so he didn't really get angry about that. He just came and got me out of this little tiny jail in this little Alabama town that I was arrested in. Anyway, so that was my first DUI. I moved to Atlanta. Within six months, I got two more DUIs. So my brother kicked me out. He said, I just can't take you anymore. And I understood. It didn't make me angry. I mean, I understood. At that time, I had saved up enough money to move into an apartment with a couple of guys. And also, I went to court. I had to do three days in jail. They took away my license, which ended up to be about four and a half years. I only drove twice in four and a half years, and that was when the person with me was so drunk that they could not drive. But anyway, moving into this apartment with two other guys, immediately my punk bum gang comes over from Birmingham, moves in, and then it's just pure debauchery, drunkenness for six months with people robbing us, kicking in the doors, just my buddies, they decided decided to steal the top off of a Domino's car, the Domino's sign. I don't know why. They also decided to mug the Domino's guy, which was pretty damn insane. So they called in a pizza to the apartment downstairs, and when he pulled up, they mugged him and robbed him and stole the pizza. Oh, Right in front of our apartment, which is just so stupid, really. But the only thing I really remember about that time that we spent all our money drinking so a lot of times we were extremely hungry. I was working at this restaurant called Po Folks. They would not 
let me work for food, so I was the fry cook. So a lot of days I would lean over my fry cook table and eat raw oysters. And after three days of eating raw oysters only, you start getting these black spots in front of your eyes. It gets really strange. So I remember one time there were four of us, and we had 85 cents, and we bought a potato, a tomato, and an onion. We made soup for four people. And I remember... Another time, the last thing you will find in your kitchen when you've eaten everything is a jar of pickles. So I made pickle soup with ketchup packets and a jar of pickles. Oh, but horrible. Then again, I was pursuing my main goal in life, and that was stay as drugged and intoxicated as possible. Again, I would fry cook during the day. I would get drunk and come back and wash dishes at night and sing. And they just tolerated it. I don't know why they tolerated it. I think I was a pretty decent cook as far as that went. But one more thing about that. One day I woke up so drugged from the night before. I walked to work as usual. It was about a mile and a half. And when I got there, the the manager just shook his head, shook his head and pointed down. I looked down and I was barefoot. And I hadn't noticed over that mile and a half walk that I didn't have shoes on because Get I, was, out. I was just so wasted. Went through that job, met a girl, moved in with her. I started uh, as a low voltage contractor, putting in alarm systems because my next door neighbor was in that business for a small company. So I, I learned how to do that kind of thing. That's when I got introduced to Crank, which was getting pretty big in Atlanta at that time. My next door neighbor, he was gay, and that brought up a whole new thing because I grew up in a very, very homophobic environment. It was really bizarre to me to be friends with a gay person. Most people, I think, would understand that you're just so influenced in so many ways by your environment when you grow up, and it's something you spend the rest of your life trying to compensate for, I believe. So anyway, his lover was the most famous drag queen Atlanta. So the first time I did crank, I snorted it out of his lover's fake fingernails. Oh. And then we would all drink together, but then past a certain point of the drinking, I would notice he would get this gleam in his eye, and I knew it was time for me to get the hell out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Even in your darkest hour, you know when it's time to get out. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, in in ways, some of these things opened me up. I did LSD about 30 times. And looking back, I mean, it's easy when we look back to say everything we did was a disaster. But I know it's kind of sidestepping, but they're doing a lot of research in hallucinogenics. And I think the first couple of times that I did LSD, it opened me up, opened my eyes, and expanded my belief system, my understanding. And then, of course, I went on to abuse it, and it lost its uh, gleam. I had some really bad trips, but it wasn't all bad. I think that part actually was useful. And another thing about the drinking and drugging is it could have very well kept me from killing myself because I felt so apart from everything and so depressed. So I think in a lot of ways, the drinking and drugging actually was medicine until it stopped working. Okay, so let me just move just a little bit farther. So my girlfriend moves out. I'm sitting in my apartment. I've still got the job. I'm 22 years old, living by myself. At that point, 
the alcohol stopped working. It was like losing my very best friend. I would drink. All I could do is drink until I passed out. But the emotional pain, the desolation, the hopelessness, it never went away until I was unconscious. So my best friend had left me. At that point, uh, my father had been sober for nine months, and he sent me a big book. And I woke up one Sunday morning. The big book was sitting in the middle of the floor. I didn't know how it got there. I still do not know if I brought the big book in or where the hell it came from. I woke up to my normal Sunday morning breakfast, and my normal Sunday morning breakfast was a half a pint of tequila. I would pop open the top and fill up that little space with lemon juice and then shoot it down. So I was drinking my morning tequila and reading the big book, and that was the last drink I took. I read it and read it. Let me go back a little bit. At this point, I weighed 129 pounds. All I could do is eat one sandwich a day and drink. I was completely paranoid. I thought people were coming to get me. I did not know who they were, but I knew they were coming. It was January, so it was like 30 degrees outside, and I would sleep on the couch and open the door so I could hear them coming up the stairs. So it was ice cold in my apartment. Also at this time, I would hear voices coming out of the corners. I would hear voices when I was in the shower. So I was convinced I was just a nutcase, and they were going to come anytime they were going to figure it out and lock me up. But once I started reading the big book, I realized that I could be an alcoholic instead of mentally insane. I just started identifying with everything in the book, and I read the whole book. I've always been an indiscriminate reader of anything there is to read. So I read the book in a day and started thinking about how to get to a meeting. I went with my friends to a couple of meetings, and then I decided that wasn't really working, plus I wanted to try other meetings. So I was taking the bus home from work every day, and I got off the bus about three miles from my house and went to a different meeting in a church in a basement. There were about 12 people there, and that's when I really connected to AA at the first time. I still hadn't had a drink, and this was January of 1986. So I met these people. I talked to them. I also met my first wife in that meeting. Someone gave me a ride home. It was all about service and inclusion. Finally, I felt a part of. I felt home. It was something that would work for me in the place of alcohol, but I was still skeptical about it. I didn't understand how people could be so happy because I felt pretty much like a burned out shell. My ex-wife remembers my first meeting. She remembers me coming in and being yellow. She thought she was surprised that a person could be so yellow. I guess my liver was in bad shape at that time, but I never went to a doctor, so I don't know. Backtracking just a bit. So I stopped drinking on that Sunday, read the big book. For the next three days, I went through DTs. I shook, uh, laid in bed. I felt like spiders were crawling all over me, and I heard the voices and the voices actually continued on for about six months after I got sober, before they disappeared. So anyway, I got involved in a group. I went to my what became my home group the next day. There were about 120 people in that group. And I got taken under the wing of a guy that had been sober maybe at that time for about a year and introduced to the what I will call the AA Nazi group, <laughs> the subset of about... 14 guys who ran the meeting and did everything at the meeting. They always set up the meeting. They always chaired the meeting. 
So I immediately learned to clean out the ashtrays. You could smoke in meetings at that time. There was always a thick blanket of smoke inside the meeting rooms. I learned to show up early and stay late. They would come and pick me up and give me a ride to a meeting every day. That was very important in my early sobriety because I really didn't once you develop a habit, it takes about three weeks. And once I had developed the habit of going to a meeting every day, I knew the guys expected to see me every day. It made it much, much easier uh, for me to stay sober. So this was very, very important part of my sobriety was having people that were concerned with me and there for me on a daily basis. The closest I came to drinking was about three months later. I got off work. I was at the train station in Atlanta, and I was really pissed that I had to ride bus home on a Saturday from work instead of getting a ride. I didn't like working on Saturdays. At the train station, there was a pizza joint across the street, which I had drank in many times in the past on my way home. And so that day, I would leave the train station, walk across the street, stand in front of the pizza joint, think about drinking, turn around and walk back to the train station. And I did that three times. Finally, the train got there and I got on the train. That's really the closest I ever got to drinking over the last 29 years. For many years, and actually up until the last five years, I thought I had had a white light experience. I thought that reading the book, the room got brighter. And I made contact with God. Now I'm agnostic as far as that experience is concerned because being on the uh, shape I was in, being delusional, this and that, I cannot say for sure that that happened. What's very important in my life today is the search for truth no matter where that search might leave, even if it doesn't show me in the most pleasant light. But anyway, so I didn't have the desire to drink anymore. Now, but let me explain that. There were a few times when I would go into a bar to buy a pack of cigarettes. During those times when I would see all those bottles on the wall, my mouth would start to water. And I'd remember the taste of bourbon, which uh, being from the South, it's one of the favorite drinks. Everyone likes to drink bourbon in the South. Uh, right. So I would have the physical reaction, but I would not have the mental craving. It would just be a physical thing of my body pulling towards that bottle. It reminded me that I was an alcoholic and that I'm not cured. That sticks with me till today. I mean, I'm never not going to be an alcoholic. I'm in a band. I play in bars. I've been playing in bars for 20 years. When I'm there in, as part of the band and playing, I never think about drinking or drugs. But if I go without a clear purpose and smell liquor, then that same old physical attraction pops up, that craving. That's not going to go away. I was born an alcoholic, and I will die an alcoholic. It's just that I don't have to drink today. So, so real quick, you were 22 years old when you woke up in your apartment and you found that big book on the floor. Yes, 22 years and old. So you stopped drinking when you were 22 years old. Yes. You have how many years sober? 29. Wow, okay. I only drank... For nine years. So only nine. Only nine years. <laughs> of course, I drank probably more than most people drink in a lifetime, but it was only during that nine-year period. Oh, one brief backtrack. Yep. I tried to stop drinking on my own for five months. I was miserable as hell. I had nothing to replace it with. 
let me say that I was working with a guy named Mark at that time. He was driving the van. I had been working for this company for a couple of years, and he was he had been an electrician's apprentice. So we were working together doing big industrial cabling jobs. He had in a big book on his dashboard all the time. So I would occasionally ask him about it as he was driving me home or to the store. I had to always go. During the week, I did maintenance drinking. I did a quart of beer on the way home and a six-pack at night, and that was my maintenance throughout for probably my last year of drinking. And then on the weekends, I would really just drink all out. So anyway, and I started slowly asking him questions about this N.A. book, and he had been in N.A. at that point for a year and a half. He would slowly give me a little bit of information, but he didn't promote it in any way. When I tried to quit for that five months, I would call him up on the phone and say, God damn, I want to drink. What can I do? What can I do? And he would say, okay, clean one wall of your apartment. Start at the top and just clean one wall. So he would give me these things, but he was waiting for me to ask the right kind of question. I think that was a wonderful thing because most of us stubborn, ignorant bastards, especially when we're younger, we (laughs) refuse to be told what to do, and if he would have presented it, in a stronger manner, it would not have functioned. So I think that attraction rather than promotion is vital in the early days. So anyway, after five months, I decided I was going to have a drink. I called my old buddy up, and she came and picked me up. We went to a bar. We dropped her car off to be serviced. I got completely drunk. We went out, and the the service station was closed, and we couldn't get to her car. And I kicked out the window and the bottom of the garage door and set off the alarm and we ran down the street so that was my return to drinking after five months i was completely miserable because i had returned to drinking thinking it was going to make me feel better of course this was when it no longer worked for me at all it was just get to a blackout or get to being passed out as quickly as possible so anyway i think the seeds were also planted from my buddy mark and uh that in a book that I would ask him questions about. Would you consider that your bottom then? Yeah, I would consider my bottom was over that last couple of months period of where I was living by myself. My girlfriend had moved out. I just felt so totally alone and hopeless. I mean, completely hopeless. I could not imagine how my life would ever get better. I felt apart from the human race. I would ride the bus to work and I thought, these people know that I'm not really a human being. They, they've got to be able to tell that I'm just, I'm not like them. I'm not worthy of being human anymore. My bottom actually happened probably over the period of a few months before I got sober. The whole thing was a bottom. There wasn't one particular period where it, it got worse. It was just all of a, I guess maybe it was a slow downhill slide as far as my health because I was continuously losing weight becoming more yellow voices were increasing so i guess mentally i was getting i was physically going downhill during all that time but as far as emotionally and spiritually i was already at the bottom for the last eight months right okay so anyway moving up in time i joined this group of guys in my home group there's about 14 of us they came to pick me up for meetings i got a sponsor he lasted the the guy that would come and pick me up He lasted for about a year. He told me to call him every day. I um, have far from a model AA 
experience or program. So after about a year, he said, you only call me every day because I tell you to, don't you? I said, well, yeah, that's why I call you. He said, well, God damn it, don't call me anymore. And he hung up on me. <laughs> I really didn't understand the point of calling every day because either I felt so great from not drinking that I didn't feel the need to, or I was still so delusional that I didn't feel the need to. And I really don't know which one that was. So anyway, I called his sponsor. He sponsored me for the next year and a half. And then one day I called him and he said, you only call me every day because I tell you to, don't you? I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, well, don't call me anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, okay, all right. So anyway, for the first three years, I went to a meeting every day itself for maybe two days. But some days I would go to two meetings in a day. So I would say I missed two meetings in my first three years. Again, with this group of guys, finally there was a big complaint going on about all of us smoking in this big room and how it made the people that didn't smoke, they couldn't come in this room. Us Nazis split off and formed our own group over that. That group grew into about 30 people. I went on along with that group for a while. I had also joined a band at that time. Over that space of time, I stopped going to meetings for a while. I was in this band. Our uh, manager, she had been the girlfriend of the drummer of Kiss. So again, I'm about 25 or 26 or something and still young and stupid. And I think, oh boy, we're going to be rock stars, which is what I had always wanted to be for as far back as I can remember. Anyway, one day we're driving in the car, and at this time I haven't been to a meeting in about three weeks. And we're riding in the car, and my bass player sitting next to me. The drummer's in the back seat. The drummer had been to AA but didn't like it. And they're talking. The bass player, he had been in AA at that time for a couple of years. And they're talking about how they don't need AA anymore. I think about this, and it scares the hell out of me. Because even though I haven't been to meetings, I know I'm an alcoholic inside and I know without a constant reminder that what alcoholics do and what I would do, and that's without the reminder, I would go back and drink. It scares me right back into my original home group away from the Nazis where I stayed for the rest of my time in Atlanta, which would have been another 15 years or so. That's pretty much my early sobriety story. The first three years was when I went to a meeting every day with this group, and we would go on retreats to a monastery for the weekend and have basically six or seven hours of meetings a day, and I kind of went through the steps through those retreats. We would try to talk about everything in our lives, so we would kind of do verbal fourth and fifth steps right there in the room, talk about our deepest, darkest secrets, the things we would never expose to anyone else. For me, that was my way of working the steps. At that time when I went into AA, it was made very clear to you that you did not date for the first year. You just didn't do it. So we didn't, but we were attracted to each other. So right after we both got our first year chip, which we got in the same meeting, she's got two weeks longer in the program than I do, we started going out, and it was on and off, on and off. After I'd been sober about four or five years, we got married, and she was a huge influence on me, of course, and ways a role model, which is kind of strange. She was mostly into OA at that time, which is a 
related program with some really, really sick people. <laughs> I hope none of them hear this, but if if they do, if you ever go to dinner with a bunch of OAs, it is a fucking nightmare. They will order, and then they will change their order, and then they will change their order again until you just want to fucking crawl under the table and hide. It's like, my God, make up your motherfucking minds. <laughs> so I was involved in running sound and, and helping with the OA conventions in Atlanta. But anyway, my wife was a constant inspiration because she always worked the program. She always was making an effort. She was always talking to people. I consider that I had a very wonderful 14 years of marriage with her up until the very last year. And I am very happy that we're still friends because so much of her made me who I am. Just obviously when you spend 19 years with a person, they make you who you are. I mean, to me, relationships are like you're two rocks with sharp edges, and you get together, and you tumble and tumble, and you break off certain edges from each other. You kind of smooth each other out, and that seems to be an analogy that really works for me as far as relationships are concerned. She was probably my main influence until I moved to Costa Rica throughout my whole sobriety. That and a group of guys from my home group, every Friday night, we would go out and have dinner after the meeting and spend a couple hours talking guys and gals. And that was my social anchor because I am not a social person. I enjoy being on stage, but I don't like being part of the audience. My father was the same way, I think, uh, just temperament. I prefer to have a few close friends. I'm what I would call a social leech. In a party, I find one person and milk them dry. <laughs> I don't know how to do small talk. I don't know how to do those kinds of things. Socially inept. I don't know about that. You know, I've had an opportunity to hang out with you. You seem pretty, pretty inept to me. Well, it's because I like you. It's because okay. I feel comfortable with you. If I don't feel comfortable with a person, I don't really know how to do it. That said, I do like most people. So then let's talk about Costa Rica. Okay. What was the turn of events that happened that made you decide that you wanted to move to Costa Rica? Excellent. Okay. My first wife, her father was a mortician in Wisconsin, but decided he wanted to be a doctor. He found out if he went to Merida in the Yucatan in Mexico, he could go to medical school free if he did two years of community service. So he took Cynthia's mother, who was from Atlanta, my wife's ex-wife's name was Cynthia. He took her and they moved to Mexico for him to go to school. And that's where Cynthia was born. And she was there until she was eight years old and moved back to the United States. So anyway, another interesting side story. He made his living down there by smuggling in appliances from the United States while he was in school. And he got caught and sentenced to jail. But he's such a smooth operator. He's a salesman born and bred that he arranged with them that he would just come in at night and sleep in the jail, and then he could leave out during the day. So that was how he served his uh, jail time in Mexico. Anyway, my ex-wife, she had always had a desire to live in a Latin American country. Her stepfather's best friend had lived in Costa Rica for a few years and told us this was the place we needed to be. 
we decided to come to Costa Rica. We uh, sold everything we owned except for a few boxes and some suitcases, got on the plane and came to San Jose, did not have a place to stay. We had language school for the first two weeks, which gave us time to find an apartment. So that's how I came to Costa Rica. Wow. That's pretty amazing. That's a very cool story because you know, sometimes just out of nowhere, from one minute to the next, you're in a completely different country and almost out of happenstance. That's it. We were going to come for two years and then go back to the U.S. It was just a big adventure. We got here, and right before the money ran out, I couldn't get a job. My wife's a real go-getter. She was a real pusher at that time. She was always busy. She had already found a job teaching English. She was on the bus all day, working all week, but she was making about $80 a week. I was not working. I was trying to find a job, but I didn't really know how to. I was just completely lost. She met a woman while she was walking in the park who owned a print shop. And the woman said, well, I could use someone that could fix computers. And at this time, I had been a computer tech for about eight years. I had went back to school, back to technical school at night and learned all about computers when I was 33, and so I had been working with computers ever since. So my wife came home that day. She saw me laying there watching TV. She said, you're going to get the hell up tomorrow, and you're going to go to work. You're going to go to this print store. They're going to pay you $12 a day, and you're going to like it. That sounds like a wife. Uh, all I could do is say, well, okay. <laughs> Nothing else, you know. <laughs> it was laid out for me. <laughs> so I did that for two weeks. I was making $12 a day, helping out at a print shop with copies, working on their computers some. During my last week, I was riding the bus out to the Forum in Santana because we didn't have a car. I met a Canadian woman on the bus who sat next to me. And she said her next-door neighbor was hiring for Hewlett-Packard, and I should give him a call. I gave him a call and interviewed, and they called me uh, about three days later. They said, well, you don't have your residency, do you? And I said, no. They said, well, why not? I said, well, you have to have a letter from an employer with intent to hire to even get a work permit or anything here. He said, so you haven't even applied? I said, no, because I have to have a letter <laughs> from an employer with intent to hire. He says, well, we can't hire you. I said, I understand. And then they called me back an hour later and told me to come in the next day. I worked for Hewlett Packard for two and a half years. I was the gringo of the bunch. It was me and 200 Ticos who were about 25 years old on average. So I was the old gringo of the bunch. I really loved working with them. I liked the people a lot. I found out they are very different than me in many ways, but that was just my cultural adjustment that I had to go through. It wasn't up to them to be more like me, which is, I think, a mistake many of us make when we come here, believing that we know the right way and they need, <laughs> they need to change their way in their country to conform to our ideas of right and wrong, which is, right. is com exactly. completely ridiculous. I worked for Hewlett Packard for two and a half years. One of the main adjustments for me Coming to Costa Rica was no personal space. There, the idea of personal space does not exist here, and buses are never full. So people would be pressed up against me in the buses, and I would come home just kind of shaken 
for the first six months from being in such close contact with people. And then, of course, I adapted and didn't think twice about it. And in a lot of ways, I think, uh, without a doubt, living in a foreign country is a growing experience. It makes us change. It makes us examine parts of our lives and our idea system. And if we don't, we're miserable and we don't make it. And we have to run screaming and crying back to our home countries because we can't adapt. But I think as far as personal growth, it's very good to move to a foreign country and to experience the culture and to adapt to be able to function in that culture. That's it. I came to Costa Rica. After a couple of years, my ex-wife left. She couldn't get a decent job here. I already knew my current wife. We were good friends. We were in a band together. We both wrote for the Tico Times. Of course, we were both in the program. We haven't talked about meetings in Costa Rica. When you got here, it was more about finding a gig. But at the same time, did you right away start going to meetings? Oh, yeah. Again, I have to really give the credit to my ex-wife. I mean, there was no question in her mind from the first day or two we were here we were going to walk in downtown and going to the spanish meetings we didn't really know where to go to an english-speaking meeting then we found the anchor club started going there on a regular basis we walked everywhere we lived in a tio so we would walk to the anchor club which was about five miles away but my wife loved to walk so we would walk all over town we would walk 10 miles a day easy on average and learn the town. Yeah, we immediately started going to the Anchor Club, and then okay. there was a guy who offered to pick us up and take us to the zoo group. At that time, the zoo group was in a house, Los Enonos. I think maybe Unity also had their meetings there, but I'm not sure. So that would have been after we had been in Costa Rica for about two months. That first meeting, I remember meeting my second wife which is very interesting that I met both of them in AA. But anyway, my first wife and second wife were good friends. And then my... That's interesting. I guess my first wife, once she got back to the States, I mean, of course, it's much more complicated than we want to go into. I think at that point, she realized how much she enjoyed living away from me, how much it was easier to be away from me. And I don't think she did it purposefully. I think it just kind of happened. She would come back to visit me in Costa Rica. She hated it here. Of course, there are some other circumstances that I don't think we really want to get into in this. But We don't need to. Right. It was very good. For 14 years, I had a great marriage. She loved. And then I became involved with my current wife, divorced my first wife. We didn't own anything, so it was a very simple divorce. Sign a piece of paper and we're done. I didn't own anything. She didn't own anything. There was no property. Over the last few years, she was pretty much disgusted with me for a couple of years. But then now we're friends again, which is very important to me because you spend 19 years with a person you don't want to have a hostile relationship with them, Right. in my opinion. So that's what I consider a success is that we're on friendly terms. I was in Costa Rica. I was going to the, the zoo group, which became my home group. At that time, there were five people. And we had meetings on Wednesday nights. Sometimes there was only one or two of us. And again, my current wife would go and people would give me rides to and from the meeting. I was working at Hewlett Packard. I would get off the bus and walk over to the meeting. I really felt that I was connected 
back into AA again, and on Saturdays we would also have a morning meeting. So there were two meetings a week at that time. When I first came to the zoo group uh, 11 years ago, uh, the first meeting I went to was at the zoo group in Guachipelin at the church on Saturday, and there was four people there. Yeah, yeah. So that's when we moved to that church. We went and talked to them. Originally, when the zoo group was in the house, there were about 12 or 14 people, but all of them moved. All of them left Costa Rica over the space of the next year till it was down to four or five of us. And we also went downtown to the Vigilance Club and looked at that before that became a meeting. We went with the guy that started that group to talk about how that could be used. Right. Yeah, it was kind of like the, the early days of what there is now. Obviously, not the early days of Costa Rica, but of the current uh, scene, I suppose you'd say. And that's my story Wonderful. Kevin, thank you so much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. That was an amazing story and absolutely inspirational for all of our newcomers. Which brings us into the next part of our show, which is for the newcomer. I'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery, and you're going to respond with inspiring and insightful (laughs) answers. (laughs) (laughs) or as best you can okay all right for our newcomers okay you ready yes what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery i could not conceive of not drinking i did not have a vision of how i could exist without a drink. I knew drinking didn't work for me, but it did not seem physically possible to stop drinking. That's why I didn't do it earlier, I suppose. But also, I did not have... Really, reading that big book opened up to me exactly what my problem was. I did not realize that my problem was that I was an alcoholic as much as I thought that I was insane. So, okay, so I'm going to say not having enough information was what prevented me from but also I had to be ready and willing I had to be feel so hopeless inside that I was willing to go to any lengths to get sober to use a cliche absolutely you know what's amazing is that you read that big book in one day well actually no I had been like I said from the moment I could read I had been reading books as often as possible and as many as I could, and I'd read several thousand books by the time I was 20. Wow. Yeah. That wasn't a stretch. No, that's an addiction for me. That's another thing that I don't do it so much anymore, but that I could get lost in a book, and that's as much of an escape. I guess that's what I used for an escape before I found drinking. I would get lost in books to change the way I felt. No, that makes sense. Absolutely. On that note, then, at what point, maybe that was it, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? That question's not quite going to work, so let me explain. First off, when I found hope was when I read that big book on the day I stopped drinking. Now, at this time, it took a while. It probably took me most of a year to realize that I was powerless over drinking because I thought I had done it on my own for five months, no matter how miserable. And my first sponsor and my group of Nazis would say, Kevin, 
you only came into AA because you don't have any friends. For a large part, that was true. I was so craving some kind of human contact that it took me a while to realize just how powerless I had always been over alcohol. Plus, I had to clear up physically. My mind had to clear out a bit. I felt the hope and I guess the joy on the first day of reading the book, but it it was over time, the first six to nine months, that I, I really realized the first step and that I was powerless. Perfect answer. Thank you. Okay, so do you have a favorite book you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery? Yes, I do. I read the big book the first day, but I promptly forgot it. My mind was floating in alcohol. But anyway, Acceptance, The Way to Serenity and Peace of Mind, it's a small pamphlet. I kept that in my back pocket. I took it out often because I was angry, self-will run riot, and why did I have to do this? Why did people do this to me? So I had to constantly turn to the pamphlet, Acceptance, The Way to Serenity and Peace of Mind, and I kept that with me. Perfect. Thank you. All right. And what is the best suggestion you ever received? to take the cotton out of my ears and put it in my mouth. I remember a shocking, uh, my first <laughs> week in my home group, I was speaking in a meeting, and there was a guy there, Dick. He had probably 16, 17 years at the time. I don't know. Anyway, and I talked. I don't know what I said first weekend. He said, he told me his story about what had happened to him, and then at the end he said, but this doesn't really matter. Because you're probably just going to go out and die anyway. <laughs> and I thought, you son of a bitch. Here I am making all these sacrifices and you're going to tell me that? But it really, really got my attention. And he ended up being a, a good friend for many years while I was up until I left Atlanta. That was the thing is I needed to learn that what I thought didn't work that my brain did not work properly and what I thought needed to be run by other people because a lot of times it was faulty. It, it was not the, the best thing for me. So I need to learn to listen to other people. Excellent. I've heard that suggestion many times. It's, it's a great suggestion. And if you could give a newcomer only one suggestion, what would it be? Well, it's going to be one day at a time, which ties in to keep coming back. I mean, uh, that was really stressed my early sobriety is if you want to drink just put it off for the next hour and then if you want to drink again put it off for the next hour just just make it through a day i knew people that that's the only thing that kept them from going back out it was just it was very common to hear stories about people just putting off that drink for another hour putting it off till they could go to sleep and get up for the next day also too so it is one day at a time and it is uh also, do the next right thing, which would be the next right thing being not to take a drink. And that's very slow. It's been a process for me over the years to do the next right thing, being the lazy bastard that I mentioned in the beginning. <laughs> to do anything, it's getting started. It's taking that first step. So uh, I know it's more than one thing, but another cliche is, what is it? Wait for the miracle? Do you remember yeah. that one? Yeah, don't leave before the miracle. Thank you, thank you. So, yeah, because the problem for newcomers is they see all the people around them that are very, very happy and content, and they don't believe that shit. I, don't, I didn't believe it. I thought, these people are 
they're full of shit. They cannot be this content, this happy. It they can't be like me because I it takes time. It's a process and to stay and to come to meetings as often as possible until you can believe what you see around you. It's to gain the trust that yes, these people really are happy and content and it's just pure logic, it's pure mathematics that if you do what they do, you get what they get. There's, Absolutely. There's as much in this program for anyone that wants it, that wants to put the work, they get the results. It's not mystical, it's just uh, math. Perfect. No, absolutely true. Great suggestions, Kevin. And before we say goodbye, I have one more question for you. Of all the meetings you have attended anywhere in the world, which group is your favorite and where is that group located? The Zoo Group in Escazú, Costa Rica. The reason it is my favorite is it's the most inclusive group. It was very strange uh, to – I came from a more traditional by the book AA in the States. I mean AA evolves. It has to evolve. Uh, if, yes. If we look at the history of AA, 100 people that had a maximum of five years of sobriety got together and wrote a book. Well, now there are many people with 40 years of sobriety. So AA evolves, and also they used the best knowledge that they had at the time, but now – there's, uh, you know, another 70 years of knowledge to stack on top of that. So I have found the zoo group very inclusive, and I think it really works because of that. It accepts people in. It makes them feel a part of. Again, it, it helps you to wait for until the miracle happens, whatever it is that, that I just forgot that you said. No, that's it. Wait for the miracle. There you it's go. It's perfect. Yes, and I love that meeting. It's my favorite meeting. It's the one that I go to. And again, thanks for sharing. We have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Thank you. Oh, one more thing, Omar. Uh-huh. I think you should have a theme song. I should think it should be, Ole, ole, oh, that jungle love. Ole, ole, oh. I believe that'd be wonderful. <laughs> I have a theme song. It's an opening intro. All right. <laughs> I obviously don't play it before the interview, <laughs> but, but if you listen to one of the podcast interviews that I already sent you, okay. you're going to hear the intro and the intro song, and you can let me know if you like it or not. Excellent. Well, thanks for having me. All right, Kevin. Thank you again for the share, brother. It was great to have you. It was great to be here. Have a good day. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then.